Welcome to Corpus Christi Anglican Church. I'm Morgan, our planting clergy. Our vision of this church is to become a common people in common prayer for uncommon transformation. This podcast is where you will hear our sermons and other teachings that have happened at Corpus Christi. We primarily serve the region of Springfield, Franconia, and Kingstown. We're glad that you're here. Thanks for taking time to listen. Here's the message. Well, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. It is great to see you guys this morning. I'm delighted to worship with you. Glad that you're here. Um, I'm Father Morgan Reed, the vicar here at Corpus Christi Anglican Church. And as I mentioned before, this Sunday is called Good Shepherd Sunday. Uh, and I love one thing. I love Coptic icons. And so this uh, is a Coptic artist. Um, there's something about portraying the reality of who Jesus is in the style that you find in that church that I find really beautiful and approachable. So that um, this morning's painting comes from the Coptic tradition. Let me pray for us uh, as we begin. In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, help us hear your voice this morning. To put aside anything that's not from you. We pray this in the name of our Good Shepherd, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, all of our passages this morning were about God as our Good Shepherd. Um, the very familiar one, of course, being Psalm 23. I, and John, John 10 is also very familiar. The one that may not have felt as familiar is the one that we're going to talk about this morning, which is 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, in 1 Peter chapter 2, there is discomfort, as we've talked about before with those who are called to live as exiles and foreigners in a strange land. Um, and in this passage, he's encouraging the believers to press into the awkwardness of, of living as a testimony of the grace of God, the awkwardness of being faithful and the discomfort that it brings. Uh, this passage bridges our formation with the outward engagement. So our, our inward formation and our outward engagement of our faith, which ends up becoming costly and it can become uncomfortable. So we can press into discomfort, uh, not arbitrarily, but because Jesus is our good shepherd. He's the one who will eventually judge and the things that are inju- unjust Uh, will be taken care of. They are seen. Uh, And he cares deeply for us, those who follow him and are pressing into discomfort. He loves his sheep who have gone astray. And so the ways that we attend to our own lives, the way we attend to our households, our neighborhoods, uh, that communicates something about following the good shepherd. And so we would do well, as we read this passage this morning, to think about and consider what are we communicating to those around us, bridging the inward formation and the outward communication. St. Peter is going to tease out the implications of what it means uh, to live properly among our unbelieving neighbors. That was in verses 11 and 12, which we didn't read this morning. But first, he's going to tease out the implications with uh, civic engagement, which is something we don't talk about too terribly often, but bridging, bridging that gap with uh, civic engagement. And then he's going to talk about it within the household. So the first question is about how Christians relate to governing authorities. How do we, how do we relate to governing authorities? We seek um, for what is ultimately good in a way that is consistent with the shepherd's love. 
just as those who had been exiled in the Old Testament, when you think of the Old Testament, he called them to pray for the peace of the city, even though that wasn't their home. And so Christians similarly are called to that kind of praying for the peace of the city, even though we recognize this isn't home, that comfort's not our main aim. And so he can say in verse 17, respect everybody. Love the family, family of believers. Fear God and honor the king or the emperor. Does the church prescribe a way of, of engaging governing authorities? When we look back in the church's history, is there a way that we would look back at the church and say, have they taught us how to engage with civic authorities? Um, when we think about all the ways people are doing that now in, uh, in American Christianity and different pockets of it, one of the questions that we can wrestle with is, how has the church taught us to do this? Um, and the answer is yes, there actually is a prescribed way they've talked about before, and it may not be what you're thinking of. The, the word that they often use is martyrdom uh, or a testimony, Testi- testimony or martyrdom. And, and speaking of um, Coptic icons, I actually didn't do this on purpose, so that's very fitting. That one, There's something that really impressed me many years ago. I went to a Coptic Orthodox liturgy, and it was in Arabic and in uh, Coptic and English. And one of the things that I, I just was really impressed by is, along with the scripture readings that morning, they also read uh, the testimony of a martyr or a martyrdom narrative as one of their readings. And I wondered what it would look like for a church to have as its founding narratives uh, the testimony of the martyrs. Like, what if the martyrs became a model for discipleship? What would that change about the way we do church? And so if you'll permit me this morning, I'm going to do something a little bit different. And what I want to do is I want to summarize some sections of a martyrdom narrative that you may or may not have heard before. Uh, It's the martyrdom of a man named Polycarp. He's the bishop of Smyrna, which is in Turkey. And there are a lot of parallels when we talk about Polycarp's martyrdom. There's a lot of language parallels to 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, It's like the writer has this in his background, in his mind, as he's writing about this martyrdom. And I think what's helpful is that it tells us a lot about the posture that Christians ought to have towards their their neighbors and um, civic authorities. You know, we often think very high level about government, and we think president, or we think the three branches. You know, but honestly, it, it boils down sometimes to just uh, who's in my HOA. Like, as I've gotten to know the president of my HOA, I think, oh, that's actually somebody I'm called to love in this way. Um, so Polycarp, Polycarp died around 150. So think within the lifetime of the final uh, apostle to have lived on the earth, he actually is the last connection to the apostolic age. When the apostle John uh, was alive, the one who wrote the Gospel of John, um, when he wasn't in exile writing Revelation, he was, uh, as tradition tells us, the bishop of Ephesus uh, in Turkey. And so the Apostle John, who was also the Bishop of of Ephesus, is responsible for ordaining Polycarp. So this is a friend of the Apostles. And he was probably in his mid-30s or 40s when he was made a bishop. Uh, And he was made the Bishop of Smyrna, which, as I mentioned before, it's a city that is just north of Ephesus in modern-day Turkey. 
Polycarp, even though he was ordained as a bishop in his mid-30s uh, or mid-40s, he, he lived to the age of 86. So he had a good 40, almost 50 years of, of ministry, faithful ministry in the church. And so there's this letter that is being written to the Smyrnians um, about the death of Polycarp, and it, it indirectly comes from the account of Irenaeus, who's another church father. Irenaeus was actually a disciple of Polycarp. So as, as Irenaeus thinks about this narrative, passes it along to others, others write it down. And the letter begins a lot like First Peter. It talks about the church's calling to be sojourners, those who are feeling the awkwardness of exile. Even in the second, third century, um, these Smyrnians were not feeling at home, and they shouldn't. Polycarp had heard that the proconsul of the area was persecuting Christians, and the reason why is they were refusing to sacrifice to the emperor, who was a self-declared deity. Uh, they wanted, and, and he wanted to stay in the town and just kind of let the chips fall where they will, but the church convinced them it's probably better to go uh, out a little ways and be isolated on this um, farm that's just outside of town. So he goes to a distant farm, and it says in the narrative that his heart, even while being there, was to pray constantly for the needs of the world and the needs of the churches throughout the world. So this is constantly on the forefront of his imagination. And the proconsul then finds where he is. They capture him. They bring him to a stadium that's full of people that, that want to see him killed. They actually ask for leopards to be let out to kill him. And the proconsul says, I'm sorry, it's not legal for me to do that. Uh, it's not the right time. The games are over. We need to find another way to do that. And Polycarp has this amazing quote that's often used in uh, different literature about him. He says, 86 years I have been his servant, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? So what does it teach us about civic engagement? Here's a man who intercedes constantly for the needs of the world. Like he's recognizing the things around him that need God's help. He has a strong walk with Christ. His presentation of Jesus is unanxious. There's something about the world that doesn't make him fearful. It just is. And it's completely confident in the goodness of the good shepherd. So the crowds, they gather wood because they can't get an animal. They, they tie him to a pyre because they say, well, we'll nail him to it. He says, you don't need to. I will stay here. It's fine. And he, he stands at this pyre. They put um, a pile of wood around him. People are in charge of lighting it. They light it. And the fire wouldn't consume Polycarp. It says that it, it made kind of a, a ring around him. Um, and the text says that he wasn't consumed and people smelled frankincense. And then as the crowd was growing impatient... Then someone in the crowd takes a dagger and they stab him. And then the text says that his blood extinguished the fire. And so here we have somebody who is willing in the goodness of the shepherd to, to live like Christ, to die for the faith. And, and the blessed martyr Polycarp is, is this treasure to the church as an apostolic witness. Somebody who's actually ordained by an apostle. And he's a teacher who spoke the words of God, who followed the example of Jesus. Polycarpos in Greek means much fruit. 
and there was much fruit from the life of this person who was following Jesus. There are so many influential Christians and influential voices in our culture, and not all of them are worth listening to, right? And, and so when we think you were, there are some voices helpful, influential, and some voices that are influential and are not helpful, I wish the voices of the martyrs were given more prominence. Like, what would it be like if the influencers of the church were those who followed the footsteps of Jesus to, uh, to the end of their lives faithfully? So, um, towards the end of the letter to the Smyrnaeans in chapter 19, it says about Polycarp, he rejoices now in the company with the apostles and the righteous, and he glorifies the Almighty God and Father, and he blesses our Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of our souls, the helmsman of our bodies, and the shepherd of the universal church, which is throughout the world. And I, I just love this imagery of Jesus being the helmsman, steering our, our ship to safe haven, the ship of our body. He's the savior of our souls, which is what First Peter talks about. It's language actually very specific to First Peter. And he's the shepherd of the universal church. So even in this martyrdom narrative, you have God as shepherd, uh, the shepherd of the universal church throughout the world. And so we want to be like Polycarp, and in what way? We want to be like Polycarp in having the needs of the world at the forefront of our imagination. What are the things that we pray for? And so we want to be interceding for the needs of the world. We want to have a strong daily walk with Jesus, something that is living and vibrant, um, that has its ebbs and flows, because that's how relationships work, but, uh, but not apathy in the way that we use the word apathy. And that we want to be completely unanxious about the state of the world. You know, how, how often do we hear, well, you know, I can't imagine how they do it these days, you know, how kids are going to grow up to follow Jesus in this world. Like every generation says that about the next generation, right? And so we want to be completely unanxious about the world around us as we live as testimonies and witnesses, as martyrs to the good news of Jesus. And we want to be completely confident in our good shepherd. This is the example of somebody like Polycarp gives us these, these insights. Um, and so let me be honest. Here's where I fail. And, and I don't know if you are like this as well. Um, I get a letter from our HOA. And it says that we need to put new house address numbers on the side of our house because they're too blue, too close to the color of the paint. And I don't go, oh, you know what? Yeah, thank you for that correction. I will gladly do that. I'm livid. I started to think about all the ways that they're wrong and I'm right and, and how much I hate having an HOA and why did God put me here? And really, it's just like going down to Home Depot, spending 40 bucks and then hammering some stuff on our wall. Like, it's not a big deal. But that's why I find it so hard um, because... If I can't submit to a simple request of my HOA of something that is completely reasonable, how much am I willing to take on in order to bear the witness of Jesus when things get really uncomfortable? And it's something that I wrestle with, and I, and I want you to wrestle with alongside me. Um, you know, I listen to the voice of my comfort and not to the voice of my shepherd. So thinking of our neighbors, how much do we care to show our neighbors the love of Christ and all the everyday sort of mundane things that, that we have to go through with them? Um, 
You know, it's easy to love our neighbors when they're nice to us. It's really hard to love our neighbors when they make our lives miserable, when they cut our internet cable on accident, or when their dog scares our child. Whatever it is, you know, we're called to love them even in those uncomfortable spaces. Um, It doesn't mean that every time we talk to them we have this full gospel conversation about the death and resurrection of Jesus, but it does mean that we seek opportunities to listen, and that every opportunity to listen is an opportunity to hear those needs of others around us that we should be praying for all the time, to listen to the voice of the Good Shepherd amidst a lot of competing voices. And so, speaking of the needs of our neighborhood, this is a shameless plug that in a few weeks, on May 12th, we're going to have a prayer walk. One of the things that we haven't had a chance to do yet is pray around the neighborhoods around this church. And so we're going to, on May 13th, it's a Saturday, we'll pray together. I've got child care available. We will go walk and pray, have lunch, and, and ask each other, what did you hear God speak as we pray together? It'll be great. Um, and I would encourage you to come and listen with me that day. And so martyrdom, when we think of the disposition of martyrdom, it doesn't mean you're always seeking to, to die. Um, please don't do that. That would be a martyr complex, actually. Um, but, but martyrdom begins with just testifying to the good news of Jesus. Is our life a testimony? Is it something that we present where we are? Um, in, and in nuanced ways, which is what St. Peter does. In its best form, it it happens in this posture of love towards our neighbors um, that can speak God's truth while it confidently believes that God judges the wicked in his time. And like a good shepherd, he's going to bring his people to the green pastures and set them beside still waters to restore their souls. And so we're listening to the voice of our good shepherd for the good of our neighbors and our co-workers. And also, as an aside, I was thinking one of the reasons that this is a hard topic to talk about is the way that the word martyr is used uh, in our culture. One, it can feel like a martyr complex, uh, which is a psychological problem. Um, The other side of it is we can confuse martyrdom with a loss of privilege. And so certain groups talk about, um, you know, losing privileges that they had as Christians in considering that persecution, which is not persecution, it's just a loss of privilege. And so that can make martyrdom difficult to talk about, but at its healthiest, it is testifying to the good news of Jesus with a posture of love, like our good shepherd towards our neighbors. And so uh, remember that in all this, St. Peter is teasing out the implications with the realm of civic authorities. He's also teasing out the implications of this in our households how do we live properly among unbelievers in our households and at the time this letter was written you can imagine um, there's a question about the chaos and disorder that Christians are introducing in society because this was a world where in the Greek philosophers they would argue that the household when it's rightly ordered is the foundational building block for a civic society Men were the masters, wives had some agency, but it was submitted to their husband's agency. They were bound to worship the gods of their husbands. They weren't really supposed to have any friends outside the household. Slaves were property, and property without agency. And in this time, it's estimated about a quarter of the empire was made up of slaves. 
So now all of a sudden people are following Jesus. And that changes everything. Women and slaves um, can, are supposed to refuse to worship their husband's deities um, if their husbands aren't converts to Christianity. Women have equal status to men. Slaves are being addressed as people. And worst of all, they're refusing to commit to Caesar as Lord. And so you can imagine how from a neighbor's perspective, these are the people that are wreaking, wreaking havoc on the society because they're disrupting a civic society. And so the slaves that Peter's writing to, they couldn't get out of their situation. There was no way for them to do so unless they ran away like Onesimus did in uh, St. Paul's letter to Philemon. But they could understand their, their situation of slavery in its proper context. The trajectory of the New Testament is the manumission and dismantling of slavery. That is the trajectory of New Testament teaching. The process of getting there in the New Testament is really slow because it's like this tidal wave that you're trying to just hit with a baseball bat. It's, it's kind of impossible to think that you could overturn this economy, this economic strategy that has enslaved a quarter of the congregation of the, uh, of the society. And so the idea of direct confrontation probably felt like a lost cause. So it's more subtle and it's more scalable. So there was this allowing of those without social power to be leaders in the community of Christ. This was a place where women led churches. This was a place where slaves became bishops. It's very different. And you can see how that would be threatening to the empire. And what this means for slaves is that the household also becomes a place of martyrdom, of testimony. They have to bear unjust treatment confidently with the hope that the good shepherd is going to restore them and redeem their suffering if they suffer for what's good. And so there's this sense that in which um, that's true uh, today in our closest relationships in our household. There are times where you can get out of it, and you should. For safety and wisdom reasons. There are times when one can't get out of their situation. And so we have to trust in the Lord as, as our good shepherd in the mystery of the economy of God. Like in unhealthy family systems, as I was thinking about it this week, when one member gets healthy and they start to do work, the rest of the family will often turn against them. It just is very common. Maybe you've experienced that or are experiencing it now. And in those cases, the person that's getting healthy should continue to bear patiently uh, with their family's accusations in, in hopes that the Good Shepherd is going to redeem that hardship. Their relationship is to the Lord. They're trusting him to take care of it. Um, the vengeance is not theirs to take on. And in the day-to-day stuff of raising ch- children and being married, there's a lot of suffering for what's right. Honestly, there's also suffering for what's wrong. And so every day kind of feels like this act of discernment, um, which is why we have daily prayer with confession. Every day is this act of discernment to apologize for the unjust wrongs that we've done and to relinquish to Jesus the anger of the unjust wrongs that were done to us in order to create space where that household is growing together in the love of Christ. And that's where our households are kind of like a monastery. And you can think of the Benedictine phrases, a school for the Lord's service, where we're learning to prefer nothing to the love of Christ. The household is the place of learning in that sense. 
And all of that needs to be undergirded with a thick and a robust Christology. We need to know who Jesus is. Uh, It's not just suffering for suffering's sake. It's suffering to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. And St. Peter is not naive. He knows that oftentimes uh, governments become uh, tyrannical. He knows that households have dysfunction. But his word about cultural engagement, I think, is profound because um, it's Christological and it has God's end in mind as a result. In verses 22 through 25, St. Peter quotes directly from Isaiah 53. Only writer in the New Testament to make such a direct comparison to Isaiah 53 and the suffering servant. And that's the foundation for how sojourners, people who are in this pilgrim way, are supposed to be following Jesus and engaging with the world, um, to suffer without reviling in return, to entrust ourselves to our Creator, to be willing to suffer for the good and the healing of others. And that involves this deep trust that God is our Good Shepherd, that He's going to lead us to green pastures beside still waters, and that He's going to restore our souls. And so the journey towards that renewal can be um, sometimes a rugged, discouraging, Um, somewhat hopeless and strenuous one, but one that you and I are not going through alone. And that's important. We should press into the discomfort of faithfulness, even when we're wronged, because that's actually part of bringing others into this life that Jesus provides. And we've been redeemed to present the gospel of the Good Shepherd to other people as we're traveling into those awkward, uncomfortable places that don't feel like home. And when we think of how to live out a life with Christ, where God's placed us, let's remember these words of Peter, remember the word, the witness of Polycarp, and remember the example of Jesus. Whether it's the authorities that impact us or the, the life situations that are out of our control or something else, we're called to bear witness to the goodness of our good shepherd, Jesus. And as we, think about, yeah, as we think about what God calls us to, uh, martyrdom begins there, that we are bearing testimony to who Jesus is, his love, his grace, his mercy, uh, in the face of opposition, doing good to put to silence uh, the accusations of those uh, who would make life hard. Let's pray. God, whose son Jesus Christ is the good shepherd of your people, Grant that when we hear his voice, we may know him who calls us each by name and follow where he leads, who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God forever and ever. Amen.